I've contemplated at some time trying to give a, a lecture by having a box in front of me and with examination not only of Colossians itself uh, but a consciousness that we gather a great deal more truth if we compare scripture with scripture than merely looking at an isolated passage. Do you remember in 1 Corinthians it says uh, the words which the Holy Ghost teaches comparing spiritual with spiritual. And uh, you only have to have a superficial acquaintance with Ephesians and Colossians to be conscious that it covers much the same ground. In both there is an emphasis upon the dispensation of the mystery. In both Paul is the prisoner of Jesus Christ. In both principalities and powers have a great place. In both Christ is the head and in both the church is the body. And in both there's an emphasis upon the fullness. When you think of the epistle to the Philippians which is also in the same group there is not one single reference to the church which is the body. It never speaks about the mystery. There's no reference to principalities and powers. It doesn't say Christ is the head and the, uh, Paul is only incidentally spoken of as a prisoner. You know he is. That's about the only link there is. Because Philippians deals with a prize whereas Ephesians deals with a hope. But here's one, one thing wherein we've got to be watchful. When you come to the Colossians it deals with both aspects. It doesn't go so intimately into things as Ephesians does with regard to the one aspect, the hope. But in the middle of it it says, take heed that no man beguile you of your reward. And that's the very word prize that we have in Philippians. So you see there's value. The more we compare one with the other, the more the truth will become uh, uh, helpful and clear. I notice in the opening words that the Apostle puts a stress on a word that I think we do well to keep well in mind. He addresses this epistle, Colossians 1 verse 2, to the saints and faithful. That's exactly the same as in Ephesians, to the saints that are at Ephesus and the faithful in Christ Jesus. And further down, when he's speaking about Epaphras in verse 7, again he uses the word, as ye also learned of Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is for you a faithful minister. The apostle is putting a stress on the word faithful. And I think we do well to have it emphasized before us that it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. We should be as educated as it's possible we should have as many abilities as we can bring before the Lord and lay at his feet. But all these count for nothing if we are unfaithful stewards. First and foremost, in all service, seek this quality of faithfulness. Well now the next thing is, we notice that in Ephesians, the Apostle occupies, his, occupies verse 3 to 14 in giving a runover of the new aspect of truth starting with, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings and going right on. And then after that, seeing you uh, hearing of your faith and your love, I now pray concerning your hope. This time, instead of giving you the doctrinal basis first of all, he says, verse 4, uh, where verse 3, We give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus 
and the love which he had to all the saints for the hope which is laid up for you in heaven. Uh, now you see, he's starting off with this, seeing that you've got the faith and the hope and the love. And you do notice, don't you, that those three come together in more passage than one of the Apostles' writings. We read 1 Thessalonians just now as a preface to this study. And there he speaks about their work of faith, their labour of love, their patience of hope. And then that calls to mind the passage in 1 Corinthians 13, when after speaking of the value of supernatural gifts, spiritual gifts, he said that now abide faith, hope, and love these three. And the greatest of these is love. Of course our version says charity. And you will find that faith, hope, and love come together in Hebrews. You'll find faith, hope, and love come together in Romans. But I'll leave you to find those passages. You'll discover that these three are very much in the Apostle's mind. And I think you will agree that any faithful ministry must include faith, hope and love. If you take away one or the other, it's an imperfect presentation. Faith is exercised here. Hope is to be realised in the future. Love links it all together, whether it's past, present or future. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. That we may have a clear conception of faith, and we may entertain some idea of the blessed hope. But it will be a cold thing, unless love is penetrating it. So the Apostle says, faith, yes, hope, yes, but the greatest of these, after all, is love. And I suppose, if we understood what the divine love is, it would include faith, because you couldn't possibly have love to God without believing him, and you couldn't possibly love him without hoping one day to be nearer to him and more like his, uh, more conforming to his desire. Well, I leave that with you. You might be able to take that a stage further yourself as you study the word, as we trust these little meetings will stimulate. Well, now, before we go any further, I've got before you uh, an exhibition of the prayers that are found in these epistles. Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. I think it's worth stopping for a moment to examine them all together before we go into any one intimately. When you come to think that these epistles only occupy a very, very short space, the three epistles together, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians, would only make a small pamphlet, the three of them. And yet, in the three epistles, there's space taken up to tell you what the Apostle prayed about. Well, that looks as though God wants us to know what he prayed about. He put them in, not merely to encourage them, but perhaps to give them a little guidance. Because you do realise, don't you, that a person's prayers will very, give you a very good indication of what he believes, and what he hopes for, and what his ideas are. Some people's prayers are never answered because they ask amiss and consume it on their own desires. The disciples came to our Saviour when he came here as king, born king, and was speaking about the kingdom, and they said, John the Baptist teaches his disciples a prayer, won't you teach us one? And he taught them a prayer that harmonised with his teaching about the coming kingdom upon the earth. Well now, here we have prayers. And it would be a good thing, wouldn't it? If sometimes folks forgot to say, Our Father which art in heaven, 
And they also, uh, they had a prayer which thought about some of the things that the Apostle has left for our learning. So let's look at them, shall we? And go back, first of all, to Ephesians, and then compare what it says with Colossians, so that we get a double witness. In, uh, one, in Ephesians 1, 15, here's a very similar statement. Wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, and love unto all the saints. Now he doesn't say hope there. He says, I cease not to give thanks for you making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation for the acknowledgement of him, margin, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling. So he reaches hope as a part of his prayer for them. So there's a little difference in the Ephesians and Colossians. He puts them three together in Colossians. He divides them here. But they are much in his mind, you see. And you will notice the other words. There's faith and love heard of. And then we have an emphasis upon his power and might in this uh, when you look further down the chapter, verse 19, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us who do believe according to the working of his mighty power which he wrought in Christ? Keep those words in mind, the power and the might. Then you'll see an emphasis upon wisdom as we've already read, that he would give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. We've also used the word hope which we put in this same chart. And there also is the inheritance of the saints. He says, I would like you to pray that you may know what is the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. And then out of it, then finally, and then we get the statement that Christ is there seen to be far above all principality and power. And finally, he's the head and the fullness. He's head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Now, they are mighty words, and as you know, we could stop on them and get tremendous amount out of them. But let's turn to Colossians and see the way in which these terms enter once more into this epistle. Instead of the apostle saying to himself, well, I've said it once, he says it the second time. And it may be, as we got the words in Philippians, he said, to say the same things to me is not grievous, and for you it is safe. Occasionally, we respond to a second statement more rapidly, that's more earnestly than when we first hear it. So here we have this all over again. Now, first of all, we look down this, to this parallel piece here, Colossians 1, 9 to 19, and there we have, of course, we've already read the faith and their love is heard of, and also the hope. I put them out separately, uh, but there you see in verse 5, the hope follows. Well, then we also have this emphasis upon power and might. This goes right down to the 19th verse, and you will see um, the verse, now where does that come? 11. 11, yes. Strengthened with all might, according to his glorious power. So, power and might is very much in the apostle's mind when he speaks when he prays. We are not to be a weak, backboneless people. We are not merely thinking of glory. We've got to remember we are in a wilderness. We are journeying home. We're not there yet. And the epistle to the Ephesians makes it very clear 
that there is a day of evil that may have to be withstood and armour is provided and so we have um, uh, going back to Ephesians for a moment the 6th chapter he says finally my brethren be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might he picks it up again you see so here he has the prayer Ephesians 1 Ephesians 6 and Colossians 1 each one referring to the power and the might that is necessary so that's something for us to lay hold of and then the emphasis upon wisdom is found in his prayer when you read in verse 9 for this cause we also since the day we heard it do not cease to pray for you and to desire that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding is on the same track wishing the same thing for these, these two companies and then taking it further still the inheritance in the saints is expressed again in uh, this Colossians 1. Now that is found uh, with number, yes, giving thanks unto the Father which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. The inheritance of the saints may have to be explained a bit more carefully presently. But you see, first of all, he's got that in mind. This inheritance in Ephesians, it was what was the the superior, supernal glory of his inheritance in the saints. Here, he thanks God that they are partakers of the inheritance of the saints, and this is in the light. Again, we have a parallel, because in chapter, in Ephesians, where our thoughts are directed to where Christ is far above all. In Colossians, it doesn't say that so much, but it tells us another thing which is very, very instructive, it says in verse 13, hath translated us. Translated. And as you read those words, you can't very well forget Enoch, who was translated. I do remember a child's comment once, when they were speaking about Enoch, and the child's comment was this. This was the explanation the child gave to the teacher. That Enoch walked with God, and one day he walked so far he never came back again. Well, that wasn't too bad, was it? See, it's emphasising your walk. Walk in love. Walk worthy. And if you're Enoch, you'll walk so far you won't come back again. Well, that's fine. He was translated. And the authority of darkness is also a glimpse at Ephesians 2 when it speaks of the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. And uh, the world rulers of this darkness which come in Ephesians 6 and then again, of course, we have Christ the head and Christ the fullness, verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence, for it pleased the Father that in him should all the fullness dwell. Well, it's most obvious then, by the reading of these two passages, that this was very much in the Apostle's heart, and it's very much in the mind of God that we should have it twice over. And what we miss in the one reading, we might pick up in the other. Well, now we go back on our story. There's another prayer in Ephesians, which occupies the second half of the third chapter. So you see, what a wonderful thought. He's writing an epistle, revealing this marvellous calling, and instead of occupying all the space in telling us what it is, he occupies a good deal of space in telling them what he prays for. That's a word for us. Because you see, there's very little scripture, positive scripture, upon which we can base our calling. 
We get it in Ephesians 1. But we can't range all over the Bible and find it because it's a peculiar calling. So we've got to take the word of God and we've got to pray over that word of God that we may see that God will give us a wise and revealing spirit that we may know what is the hope of our calling. Uh, it may be that this is laid upon us more than in some other callings because other callings have got a great deal of scripture to base themselves upon. Here we've just got these few pages and if we miss our way there, there's nobody to teach us. So now we'll come back in Ephesians 3 and see the second prayer. If we were looking at Ephesians only, I would draw your attention that the direction of the Apostle's thought in Ephesians 1 is up where Christ sitteth. And the direction of the second prayer in Ephesians 3 is that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. That's the right order. Not in me first. But there he is. And if I only know him as I should, then the other movement can take place that he can descend spiritually and dwell with me. So now we look at that. Ephesians 3, 14 to 21. Here we have a peculiar statement with regard to uh, the extent of our knowledge which almost seems to be a contradiction. Verse 19. And to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge. The love of Christ which passeth knowledge. Now if you'll turn and keep your finger in Ephesians 3 and turn to Philippians 1, you'll see that he's got something akin to that, not quite the same. Uh, but he says in Philippians 1, um, this is where we start, verse 9, And this I pray that your love may abound yet more and more. In the, in the uh, Ephesian prayer, there's a love which is beyond us. But in Philippians, oh, I should think it was, it was beyond a good many of us, so far as our present attainments are concerned, that anybody could write of us that our love abounds more and more. But that's evidently the goal of God. Then we go back in uh, Ephesians 3, and we are to comprehend, it says, that we may be able to comprehend with all saints what is, now our version says, what is the breadth and length and depth and height. Well, that makes you say the breadth and length and depth and height of what? No, it isn't that. Leave out the word the. It isn't there. That you may comprehend what is breadth and length and depth and height. Well, what is it? Well, he says, that will puzzle you. God uses terms that are beyond our mode of calculation. Do you remember how he spoke in the Old Testament? As far as the east is from the west, so far have I removed your transgressions from you. Well, how far is that? No possibility of telling. Because you said, the east of what and the west of what? Oh, no. And then if you remember the different callings, are related to this type of measurement. Abraham was told that he was given the land and when he was separated from Lot, it says he was to walk through the length of it and the breadth of it. That's just flat, two measurements. And then when you get the second sphere, that's the heavenly Jerusalem, it says the breadth of it and the width of it and the height of it are equal. That's three measurements. And you and I live in a three-dimensional world. 
That's all the measurements you have to take of your room, if you're going to do papering or distempering or whatnot. If you know the length of it, and the breadth of it, and the height of it, you've got it. Now there are some people who've got such a wonderful mind that they can speak about a fourth dimension. And they tell me that if you understood a fourth dimension, you could walk right through a brick wall without being hurt. Well, I'm not going to try it because I'm too dull, you see. I might get hurt. But I could understand that there's a possibility. So here we are, right up in infinity here. There's four dimensions here. What is the breadth? What is length? What is depth? What is height? But in the middle of the density. And then some people say, you're cramped and narrow if you limit yourself to these few epistles Paul wrote as a prisoner. Cramped and narrow. We're right in an ocean beyond our bounds. So we have now to comprehend what is breadth, depth, length and height. Now there's another aspect in Philippians which balances that. And it says, Philippians 1 verse 9, And this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment. The word judgment is actually the word sense. I think that is a rather rebuke to us, isn't it? In knowledge, we want love abounding in order to have just sense. Aren't we, aren't we conscious many times that our sense is crippled. We can't always add up two and two and make four of it. We get at loggerheads with one another over things because sin has entered in and marred the very process of our thinking. But love has got a tremendous clarifying effect, friends, upon every one of us. And if our love abounds, our sense might get a bit more sensible, you see. So that's good. That she may approve things that are excellent. Well, that's another good thing. But the margin tells you that the word approve is the word to try, to test. And the word excellent is the word differ. So put it that way. You want this abounding love. You want this increasing knowledge. You want this judgment or sense that you may try the things that differ. Well, when Paul wrote his last epistle, he put it another way round. He said, rightly divide. Well, rightly divide is trying things that differ. Now, here we then have two great principles to guide us in our study of the Word of God. I've quoted it before. I've quoted it again. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, the words which the Holy Ghost teaches comparing spiritual with spiritual. That's one way. And here we have try the things that differ. If you approach any subject, you'll discover the surest and quickest way to a realization of whatever is in your view is to observe differences. Let me illustrate. It's an old illustration. I won't try to invent another one. The so-called visitor from Mars has come here with a spaceship or a flying saucer and he wants to take back some instruction to his own people uh, what a human being is like, what a man is like. And what he goes back with is this description. He said, I want you to understand that the inhabitants of the earth there, men, are animals. That's true enough, because you know on the wireless they you have animal, vegetable or mineral. You must be one or the other down here, friends. So that's no slight on you. They are animals that eat and drink and sleep. Now that's true, isn't it? You 
All look at any one in particular. You are an animal that eats and drinks and sleeps. But the people up in Mars, they haven't got a conception of a man or a woman, have they? They may have a conception of a cat or a dog. Now then, supposing when the man from Mars asked for some definition of a man, he was told the things that differ. Look, as you put the differences, you build up the individual. Man is an animal that reasons, wears clothes, cooks his food, uses tools, has an articulate language. Oh, why, the moment you put all the things that differ, you build a man up until you put everything that differs, there he is. You and I are just a complete bundle of the things that differ, that make us different from everybody else. So, instead of saying wasting time, here is a very important principle in studying the Word of God. Try the things that differ. Put them into their catalogues, and then keep them there. I've 